Welcome to AUKUS Amplified from the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons. We're advancing hip and knee patient care through education, advocacy, and research. Welcome to the AUKUS Amplified podcast series. We're very excited here at the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons to bring you the series of five podcast highlights from the fall meeting in 2019 of the most recent and most interesting research articles presented at the meeting this year. Today we'll be discussing the RAND Award. My name is Stephen Obinia from the University of California, San Francisco, and I'm currently the chair of the Digital Health Committee. I'd like to introduce you to my co-host, Joe Murat, who will introduce our guests on our podcast today. Thank you, Safno. My name is Joe Murat. I'm at Methodist Sports Medicine in Indianapolis, and I have the pleasure of being here with Jason Jennings and Doug Dennis, who will tell us about their award-winning work today. Can you give us an overview of the work? Well, the idea for this study was spawned about three years ago when I was speaking at a meeting in England, and an anesthesiologist got up and gave a talk on very low intravenous fluids for people with knee replacement with the logic that we may be doing a procedure that has 100 cc blood loss and giving larger volumes of fluids and there's potential adverse effects of that and you know giving excessive fluid you have uh, well documented uh, data that it increases the risk of urinary retention, hypoxemia, actually hypercoagulability for 48 hours, as well as if you create excessive fluid in the interstitial spaces, there is histologically tissue damage. And the thing that was interesting for me at that point, I had no idea how much intravenous fluids my patients were typically given. So the Monday after I returned, I asked, and many of my patients intraoperatively were getting two liters of fluid. And I really thought how many times a patient had come in at the two-week mark and said, well, geez, you know, my knee is really doing well, but I'm up all night going to the bathroom. Or, you know, when I got home and weighed myself, I weighed 12 pounds more than I had before. So then, you know, I looked in some of the general surgical literature, and there is problems with excessive fluid in uh, healing of GI anastomoses. And as it applies to knee replacement, well, if I am creating all this extra fluid in the limb, what effect could this potentially have our rehab and those sort of things? And I tasked Jason, who was at that time our fellow, with this question and he became very interested in it and did a lot of the work that brought this study to fruition. So Jason, tell us a little more what piqued your interest because even though your fellowship director asked you to, you still have to have some interest in the topic to bring it to bear. Yes, uh, when you're asked to do something in fellowship, you always say yes, but there certainly was an interest because uh, as I was in clinic, again, patients would come back and say, I'm doing fine and a lot of things patients will talk about have nothing to do with orthopedic surgery. So we really took a step back. We met with our anesthesiologist and started asking questions. And they're all over the map with how much pressors they're giving in the operating room, how much IV fluids they were given. So as we started to dig deeper, we realized that, well, this could be a significant issue. And if you look in the orthopedic literature, there's really no guidelines to help us. Interesting you brought up, it's not just fluids, it's also the management of the fluids by the anesthesiologist in surgery, including the use of pressors and what impact it could have on our patients. Terrific. Jason, can you give us an overview of the methodology of your paper and how the study was structured? 
Sure. So after our power analysis was completed, uh, we elected to do a prospective uh, randomized study where we took patients from a quote-unquote traditional fluid management. Those are patients that get IV fluids intraoperatively by the anesthesiologist versus a more oral-driven protocol where we tell the patient, you need to let thirst drive you, but we give them a specific amount of fluids that they should take. So in our study, three days before surgery, uh, the patients in the oral group began drinking 20-ounce fluids three times a day minimum, and they kept a very detailed log. And then we allowed them to drink before surgery four hours before, okay? So they would drink 10 ounces of cleared liquids, whereas the traditional fluid group was NPO, and we didn't give them guidelines. Intraoperatively, the patients from the traditional group got two liters of fluid, and then postoperatively got another two liters of fluid. So we made that as our baseline of four liters of total fluids. The patients in the oral group got 500 milliliters maximum, so what we did is 75 milliliters starting in the operating room, and then afterwards, once they had PO intake, we stopped fluids unless they needed the 500, so. Let's get back a second. So 20 ounce of fluid for your average person is how much? A little bit more than a can of Coke. Can I mean, of Coke. Yeah. yeah. So, and then the other thing is, are these patients getting spinals or general anesthetics? All patients got spinal anesthetic. All patients got TXA as well. And uh, we all did abductor canal blocks on these patients as well. And yet I'd like to make an emphasis on preoperative hydration because, again, when we started this study, we sat down with our internists, our anesthesiologists, as well as the orthopedic team. And one of the concerns are, geez, if we're really going to cut back fluids, could there be adverse effects? So we wanted to make sure our patients were hydrated well preoperatively. And so all of them, starting three days before, three times a day, consumed 20 ounces of fluid three times a day for 72 hours on the front end. And as Jason said, then hydrated with 10 ounces, I believe. And that was a minimum, right? Because you didn't put an upper limit. That's exactly right. Yeah. So no, it's basically we a preload. To, yeah. And so to summate, we really wanted to make sure that patients that were going to be involved in this protocol came to the operating room well hydrated. So four liters seems a lot to me. Is that what you found? How'd you pick four liters total during, the, and I presume it's a one day length of stay for most of your patients? It is. And so the two liters was basically the average that we came up with with our anesthesiologist. Again, no guidelines. We looked at a lot of numbers and what we've been using. The four liters is total basically over the 24 hour period afterwards. So if you think about it, a lot of patients are getting 100 milliliters an hour, or 125 milliliters an hour continued through overnight, which has been a standard practice uh, for quite some time. So we kept those fluid running and we use that as an arbitrary cutoff. Again, we don't have literature to support one or the other. We went with what our institution typically had been doing and tried to uh, continue with that. And I really encourage surgeons who are interested in this topic because I bet you the majority were like me. I didn't know what volume of fluid the anesthesiologists were giving our patients. And very typically, they receive two liters of fluid intraoperatively for a procedure, again, that has a blood loss yeah. of maybe 100 cc's. They put the Math in. doesn't add up. They put the spinal in, they expect the drop, <clears throat> they just open it up, one liter goes in, and then the next comes up is, yeah, you're absolutely right. Okay, so then what did you measure as your study outcomes? 
Yeah, so our primary outcome was body weight. We felt that if we could control body weight, we can maintain a more euvolemic state or normal physiologic state. We had a, a many secondary outcomes. So we looked at functional scores, uh, PROMs, we look at lower leg edema, we looked at adverse events, complications, and of course our anesthesiology records as well. So how much pressures did the patients need? Did they need extra support pre and post operatively? And so those are the, the outcomes that we, we chose to study. Another urine specific gravity, you know, we wanted that as our measure when our patients came to the hospital were they truly better hydrated so you know we looked at, at urine specific gravity as well and I was very interested in the measuring limb edema and uh, our colleagues uh, bioelectric impedance spectrometry right. and and we have engaged over the last six years with a very bright team of physical therapists at our medical school who have introduced us to that technique where you can actually go ahead and use that. It measures the impedance, which is a reflection on the amount of fluid that's actually in the limb. So what was the results of your research? So we found that patients getting more fluids, their body weight did increase for the first two days postoperatively, which was our expected finding in our hypothesis, which showed our primary outcome. Looking at some of our secondary outcomes, we did see increased limb edema on postoperative day one, but we did not see differences beyond that. We found that our anesthesiologist did not need to increase the amount of support in the perioperative period, and we did not have adverse events from using a less fluid uh, during surgery. And most importantly, this we feel is a very safe protocol for the right patient population. And to add to that, our patients were better hydrated. Interestingly, for the first 16 hours after, the oral fluid group had lower blood pressure than the group that had the high amounts of intravenous fluid, but there were no adverse effects associated with that. So again, we've loaded these people up and maybe push their blood pressures maybe a little bit higher due to increase intravascular volume. But we had no cases that the lower blood pressure in the oral group had to have any medical attention for any hypotensive episodes. I thought it was a very good idea of you to check the urine-specific gravity because you can't switch that as quickly with intravenous fluids. That sort of gives you a better sense how the patient's hydrated overall coming in. So what were your findings on that? Well, the urine-specific gravity indicated that our patients were entering the hospital much better hydrated. And I want to emphasize, because I think if you're going to use this protocol, I think you need to follow the protocol as far as increased emphasis on oral hydration preoperatively. And we also had all of our patients for, I believe, 72 hours after continue on that same oral hydration protocol. So I think that's an important thing of, of what we found. But I think what we proved is that in uncomplicated primary knee arthroplasty, we don't need to be giving these patients such high levels of fluid, particularly if they come to the hospital well hydrated. Yeah, let's underline that because we don't want to not have the pre-op hydration protocol and cut your fluids. That is right. That's probably and, not a good idea. And, you know, the other secondary outcomes, the urine outputs were higher because we gave them all that extra fluid. Their body weights are higher because of that. Early on, first couple of days, they have more limb edema. We didn't see that at one and two weeks. So I think what we proved is that you can safely do it and uh, 
probably a potentially better thing. And if we actually look at how we're going to more outpatient surgery, those sort of things, I think we have learned from outpatient surgery. We need increased preparation on the front end. So we need to make sure our patients are well hydrated and encourage them to continue to follow the oral hydration after they're leaving the hospital on the day of their operation. Have you widely implemented this in your practice now, and were there any challenges that you faced when you did it? We have, for the most part. I would say, just like everything in orthopedics, it is a team approach. So in this study, we had one of 13 selected anesthesiologists, and they really have to understand the protocol. And so I would argue that an anesthesiologist who is used to dealing with total knee arthroplasty patients is better suited than than someone who may not be used to dealing with these patients. So having your whole team on board and really creating the protocol together with your anesthesiologist, your medical team, your nursing team is imperative. And your pre-op education team. That's exactly right. So in the ERAS world, where we have early mobilization, et cetera, they emphasize using uh, fluids with some sugar in it because it increases water retention. Did you guys go to straight water? Did you use Gatorade? Did you use any of these other We allowed them to use any clear liquids. And yes, having some carbohydrate is probably ideal for gastric emptying and actually the patient's feeling a little bit better coming in. And their literature would suggest that you can do this two hours before surgery. We arbitrarily chose four hours before surgery for two reasons. One, I think at the time we started this study, or started at least the IRB process, uh, that was kind of new into the orthopedic world. And number two, uh, if we have patients that cancel or are running ahead of schedule, if we're two hours, a lot of times that, can de- that could delay us. So we used four hours as an arbitrary number because of those reasons. That was a really excellent summary of what is an exceptional paper because it can actually change the way we practice. And I love hearing about papers that you can t- go home with a real, you know, lesson, a lesson, something you can say, I want to try this. So any suggestions to people like me that want to go home and say, I want to start doing this, any sort of operational take-homes? So operationally, I think you probably should have a meeting with all of your team, involve everyone. So preoperative team, postoperative team, anesthesiologist, and your medical team. Uh, Second, I think you need to educate the patients, and you need to choose your easier patients that you know probably can tolerate this initially. Because in our study, we did eliminate patients that had potential volume-dependent issues, cardiac disease, lung disease, end-stage liver disease, or kidney disease. So you want to choose your healthier patients, start there, and then titrate as you think you can go. But the, I think the biggest thing I would encourage the listeners of this podcast is to go home and see what your patients are actually getting. And you may be surprised. And again, I've, I've emphasized much in this podcast about preoperative hydration. And it's better for all of our patients to enter the hospital in a non-dehydrated state. And there is some evidence that many patients, due to the NPO after midnight, come in dehydrated. So... You know, it's, it's a full program, but we have adopted this in the majority of our patients, other than those patients that Jason mentioned, that, you know, have fluid-related uh, disorders where you may want to have that extra fluid on board. Just before we close this out, I just got a thought. We're talking fluids, Foley catheters. Doug, do you use them? Majority of our patients, we don't. And, you know, we have a protocol of who gets them, who doesn't, but the majority that uh, nowadays we do not. In your current practice, do you use them? We do not. We screen. In this study, everyone got a Foley catheter for the reasons of maintaining our data and actually being able to look at accurate urine output. So. 
How are you guys doing it back where you're at now? Uh, no Foley Catholic. No yeah, I think that's definitely a big trend in arthroplasty. So, gentlemen, I want to thank you for participating in the inaugural series of ACAS uh, Amplified Podcast. Our goal is to amplify the best research and best thinking that we bring to this uh, organization every year and make this available to people who maybe need to review it or weren't able to attend. So thank you very much for participating. I'd like to encourage all the audience uh, of this podcast to go online and rate us and give us lots of stars because I think we could definitely benefit from that. We'll see you back on our next podcast, which will be podcast number three of this series. And uh, I'd like to again thank our guests for participating and Joe for being my co-host. And we'll see you guys in the next podcast. Thank you. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for AUKUS Amplified. Visit aahks.org to learn more about how members of the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons educate, advocate, and investigate in the field of hip and knee replacement surgery.